This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares. I'm joined today live and in person by Tom Selby from AJ Bell. Hello. This is exciting, isn't it? Yeah, so we're back in the studio for the first time since March. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really good. It's always nicer to do these things face-to-face rather yep. than having to rely on dodgy technology. Well, I can, I can reveal Dan has got quite a long Gandalf-esque beard. <laughs> um, lockdown has not been kind. No, it's been it's brilliant, it's brilliant isn't it? It's, uh, it's nice to see people's faces in a covid secure environment it's nice to see the biscuits are back yeah it's all very good so, yeah so yeah so tom what are we going to talk about this week well clearly the big news since we last spoke was the announcement from rishi sunak about the new job support scheme so we'll be looking at how that's going to work and what it might mean for individuals and for businesses we'll also be checking in on people who are taking a retirement income and frisking some new official data on withdrawal rates. And Dan gets under the bonnet of the private equity space in a special interview interview later in the podcast. But first, Dan, it's been another dramatic week. It feels like it's a dramatic week every yeah. week. I say that, I say that. I'm going to have to come up with a new intro line for the markets <laughs> update, aren't I? But um, clearly Brexit trade, do- trade talks um, and a fractious US presidential debate last night have been dominating the headlines. What's been happening in the markets this week, Dan? Absolutely loads. Yeah, I mean, it's, Knew it. it's you know, the, the I know people talk about having quiet weeks and stuff. Mm. You just don't see it. So, I mean, it's the week started with um, sort of cautious optimism from the EU that a trade mm. deal can be struck with the UK. I mean, of course, like all these things, you, you fast forward one day and then it's all <laughs> this optimism sort of fading away. But mm. yeah, it, 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 this is bubbling away for ages and now we're getting we're a matter of days where we could potentially mm. see something happen um the uk market also got a lift from um ping and taking uh, a larger stake in hsbc so hsbc is one of the biggest companies in the FTSE 100 index so if its share price moves quite a bit it will pull the whole index up as yeah. well so so we saw this um activity happen and then the markets weren't quite sure what to expect of the Trump-Biden presidential debate. Well, the, 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 I mean, I, so I've, I, I haven't, I didn't stay up last night to watch. I think it was like three in the morning or something, wasn't yeah. it? UK time, which is a bit, a bit much for me. But I've read some of the stories and some of the snippets from the debate. It really sounded like all heat and fire and bluster and very little actual information, which I guess was maybe to be expected. Yeah, I mean, the perfect description of it: short on policy, long on insults. So <laughs> it's uh, yeah. So I mean, the markets has just sort of shrugged their shoulders at, mm. at this, and I, I guess it's um, we knew that there would uh, be sort of some shouting matches and stuff. Yeah. But you know, there's no real concrete stuff in there to, no, to get your no, teeth into. No so. real change in the in the polls either on the back of it. I presume every the people's guesses as to who may win the presidential race have remained. The same, albeit with a reasonable amount of uncertainty. Yeah, I did, I, well, I did see one graphic that showed mm. a little tick up for Biden, but you, you, you don't know what. I actually don't know whether that was done before or after. Yeah. But it just sort of flashed up on social media. But you know, essentially, 
Biden is big on pushing up taxes. So theoretically, that would be bad for the stock market. Mm. But um, I think there's a lot of people who just fed up with Trump. And even if Biden gets in, they might have seen it as a, as a positive thing for America as yeah. a whole. So we'll see. We don't take sides on the on this show. So but, um, you know, we'll we'll continue to look at this uh, in in more detail. And anyway, as we get closer to the the actual sort of election day, we'll. You know, I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll do a perhaps we'll do a special podcast on what might happen um, to various parts of the markets and stuff and your investments, but you know we had some other figures. UK GDP mm. uh, hit by its largest fall on record, but I don't again I don't think anyone's surprised. Yeah, it's I, I do I do think I think I've said previously on when we when we've talked about this sort of stuff on the podcast that you do become slightly I don't know numb to some of these massive figures that are coming out and they are kind of historic shocks. I mean, we talked the other week about negative interest rates and you start, and it, negative interest rates, the idea of it has barely hit the headlines and it just kind of shows how much news there is out there at the moment. Today, there was there were some stats from the ONS about the, the savings ratio in the UK reaching a new record high. So that's the amount that people save as a proportion of disposable income. I think it's about 29 or 30% now. Obviously, that's mainly because people aren't spending money or haven't been spending money in the second quarter of this year as they would have been normally because everywhere was was obviously shut and most people were in full full lockdown during that period but it has just been a year of exceptional statistics and exceptional events and they just they just keep on coming yeah i mean the savings ratio is quite interesting mm. it, i don't think people were short things to buy um i think the props a bit worried about what might be coming around the corner so it's better to sit on a bit more cash but yeah. I, know, I hope that people look at it and say i get a nice feeling from having more cash mm. in the bank um you know what am i you know, it gives me opportunities in the future yeah perhaps when things settle down a bit um it's quite good i mean, I mean i'm hoping it will increase people's savings habits, yes i actually i actually spoke to um uh, a bbc journalist about about this um he won't mind me saying because he said it live on air um this guy called jason rossum from um bbc radio london and he was saying that for the first time ever in his life he was. He had some money saved. He'd, oh, wow. nev- he'd never <laughs> saved any money before, and during lockdown, because he's a big fan of the theatre and things like that, and because he hadn't been spending money going out to the theatre, going out to restaurants, he'd saved. I think it was about hundred quid or hundred and fifty quid or something like that. But I think I got the sense from him that actually, that while the idea of saving had just never come across his radar, now that it had not been forced on him, but close to being forced on him, because he simply couldn't spend the money as fast as it was coming in. I think there was a little positive feeling from that. And I'm sure a lot of people will be in a similar situation to that where they thought that it was impossible for them to save money. But when the opportunity to spend on certain things is taken away from you, you realise that actually it is possible to have some money to some money spare. And when you've got some money spare and you've got a cash buffer in place, that can give you some some quite valuable peace of mind. Yeah, absolutely. So other stuff we've seen on the markets is... Um, two people interested in buying William Hill. So the uh, private equity firm Apollo and the gambling group Caesars. So mm. uh, William Hill has an 80% ownership of a joint venture with Caesars. So they've got an existing relationship. Um, so what Caesars said was that if shareholders voted in favour of Apollo, it would pull out of this US joint venture. Now, the excitement about William Hill is all to do with the US market, certainly not the UK. Um, and so, therefore, you, know, you could argue this is a one-horse race, that Apollo is just not going to be able to buy it unless it's through you know, massive amount of money, which is unlikely. So the, the share price in William Hill jumped more than 40% on the initial um, sort of confirmation that there were some sort of takeover interest. And then soon after, we 
had Caesars come out with saying, you know, we're going to this is we're going to pay two seventy two p for for an offer, which is less than what the share price is trading at. So I think there's going to be some investors disappointed that mm. this sort of M and A activity hasn't resulted in um, sort of significant share price gains beyond that initial jump when they confirmed the talk. So. But analysts think that the U.S. business is worth three quid long term, perhaps another pound for the for the uh, UK operations. So it seems to be that, that that Caesars are not paying enough for William Hill. But William Hill's board has already, you know, they've mm. recommended this offer. But interestingly, there've been no other letters from other institutional investors supporting it. It's normally, what happens when you get a takeover approach? Certain shareholders will say, yes, you know, we're going to vote in favour of this. And you get some sort of idea straight away. So it's very unusual to have nothing there, but uh, we'll see. And so another another big story is Asda potentially mm. being taken yes, over. Yes, I heard about this one. Yeah. So Asda is owned by Walmart, so it's an American business. Walmart's been trying to get rid of it for a while. Um, cast your mind back a couple of years ago, Asda was going to merge with Sainsbury's. That's a, as a way for Walmart to exit didn't happen on competition ground. So uh, now we've got uh, private equity group TDR uh, teaming up with the, the um, UK Issa Brothers. So this is uh, a group which um, in 2001, they set up Euro Garage, so a single site in Bury. Um, and then they've expanded it to 6,000 sites across 10 countries. So yeah, these, these are two lads from Blackburn. Yes. That's right, isn't yeah. it? Two self-made lads from Blackburn. Yeah, really interesting. So it's in, in 2016, um, Eurogarage was created, the EEG group. So they merged with TDR's European Forecourt Retail Group. Um, and then, say, they've got operations in the UK, US, Europe, and Australia. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a big business now. Um, and they've recently done a deal with Asda to trial... Um, various sort of Asda on the move, it's called, at three uh, of EG Group's fuel station forecourts. So it's so the, the, the rumour is that the, these two parties, Issa Brothers and TDR, are going to make a, a £6.5 billion offer for Asda. Now, when Sainsbury's did that move to try and merge, Asda's implied value was £7.3 billion. Mm. So it's less, but I guess you could argue we've got pandemic at the mm. moment and um and the, and the sort of walmart is still seen to be eager to sell mm. so um so the, the interesting thing is asda's got masses of freehold property so i think the option here is to maybe maybe the sort of the buyer if it happens would want to convert car parks into residential property um you could perhaps put some more um complimentary service stuff mm. on there. But I mean, you know, asda's not really big in convenience stores so it could do some of that so it's definitely one to look at but it then leads to the idea of longer term, you know, if, if a stronger sort of Asda company, could, you know, what would they do next? And there's speculation. Maybe it wants to mer um, sort of buy Iceland, mm. maybe merge with B&M later on. So there's lots of options here. So I think supermarket space is obviously one that we've all been looking at this year because we've all wanted to um, find a way of getting food into our house yeah. during lockdown. But now, you know, it could be back to, to big deals going mm. on. So yeah, I mean the other, and so finally, just I thought it was worth touching on Boohoo. So Tom, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure you're a big fan of um, Boohoo men clothes as well. You I, buy I've, your I've, stuff. I've rarely shopped at Boohoo men, but I would never rule it in or out. As you say, this is an independent podcast, which doesn't yeah. favour any particular 
world leader or any particular online <laughs> clothing well, company. Yeah, you use the word rarely mm. rather than never, so which, which intrigues me. Well, I, I, it's possible that my um, my better half has bought me things from there and I'm unaware of it, but as, as far to my knowledge, God, I, sound, <laughs> I sound like I'm in an interview room, Dad. to my knowledge, I have never had any relations with Boohoo. Yeah, well, they've come out with... Um, their half-year results, sales mm. growth better than expected. Um, and this is quite interesting because if you cast your mind fairly recently, they, they were in the press for very bad reasons. Mm, yes. of, um, you know, questionable things going on in their supply chain, not treating people properly. Yeah. So, so, this, so this was the stuff in Leicester, right? Yeah, so yeah. You know, accusations of modern-day slavery. Mm, yeah. and stuff like that. So um, it seems all this sort of negative publicity they got hasn't affected their sales, which to me is quite mm. surprising. Um, so, but the, the things that struck me were one, we've had a report into their practices, and, and essentially they've been told off um, for having poor corporate governance, and they've promised to to improve um, how they do things, their compliance of the supply chain, how they treat people. So, all of this would imply extra costs in the business, for particularly for monitoring purposes. And in their results, they're talking about having to spend more money on um, capital expenditures, things like warehouse automation, IT. It's costing them more to send things mm. overseas. Um, during lockdown, loads of people have been ordering stuff but not returning things. So I think historically, people would perhaps buy two or three different sizes and keep the one that fit mm. and send back the one that didn't. Um, what Boohoo was saying is they're seeing a slow shift back to these normal trends of more returns and so more money. So they they have going to have higher costs here. Mm. Um, and I wonder, are they going to pass that on to the customer? So Boohoo's known as being cheap, yep. you know, low ticket price. So if they start pushing prices up, will that affect the customer demand? I don't know who will we'll see, but it's... Uh, do, you, do you think that could be the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back then? Because you, you mentioned that people haven't pulled away from shopping with Boohoo yet, despite the fact that we hear all the time that... Um, the younger generations in particular are interested in, you know, environmental and social governance, are interested in um, the provenance of their products, where they're coming from. It's not just about the price that they pay for it, but they want to make sure that it's produced in an ethical way. But clearly the results suggest that those headlines around some practices that were perhaps not so ethical haven't affected demand yet. Do you think it will, if there is a little price hike, that that might enough to push people away or is it, is it hard well, to say it's, it's very interesting actually. i don't know the answer mm. um if you talk to like a restaurant business that faces higher costs what mm. they'll do is switch to cheaper yeah. cuts of meat and things like that to be clever if they think they can't pass on the, mm. the extra cost could boohoo switch to cheaper quality clothes i mean that's one way but you know i, I don't know it's sort of it's are they already sort of um sort of not amazing. No, they're not high quality mm. clothes, perhaps at the moment. So I don't know. It, it's it, there's, there's options for companies to take, but I think if you know, a company like Boohoo, I would have thought they wouldn't want to stomach all this cost themselves. Mm. They would look to pass it on somehow. So one to one to watch. Yeah, so. I have to say the success of online clothing retailers was no no surprise to me. Having spent the first three months of lockdown, I suspect four or five times a day there was a knock on 
There was on the Selby front door, yeah, and it was a different item of clothing that was being delivered, not purchased by me. I was just uh, saying, it's all your corduroy suits. <laughs> so <turning> out, <laughs> <laughs> Lots of items delivered. I'd say about one in three or one in four kept. So not yeah. not good for the environment. Oh, okay, <laughs> not my fault. Yeah. So last week saw Rishi Sunak unveil some details of a new wage support package designed to succeed the furlough scheme. So Tom, how is this going to work, and how is it? different to furlough. Yeah, so I guess most people are probably familiar with uh, the furlough scheme, so the scheme that was introduced by Rishi Sunak back in in March as part of an emergency support package as coronavirus was really kind of ripping through through the country in March and April. So that that package of um, measures essentially gave um, uh, guaranteed to pay 80% of workers' salaries and people didn't have to go into the office, didn't have to work any sal- any hours at all, up to a, a cap of, um, of £2,500 a month, so roughly £30,000 a year in salary. So that was the government's emergency response to coronavirus and that was across sectors and there was no no picking or choosing how that was going to, to work. So that package of measures is being tailed off as we speak, is due to come to an end at the end of October. Um, but clearly we're now hitting this second wave of coronavirus. The government's announced a load of new lockdown restrictions, so not quite as tight as we had in those early days of coronavirus, but still restrictions that are potentially going to have a big impact on certain sectors. So we've seen the 10pm um, closing time for pubs and the, the restrictions on how many people can gather, the rule of six and things like that. So that's going to have an impact on the economy. And so there was this sense that something needed to be put in place of um, the, the furlough scheme in order to make sure that, um, Rishi, in Rishi Sunak's words, viable businesses don't go to the wall. So we've got this new job support scheme. In brief, how it's going to work. Um, so employees will have to work at least a third of their normal contracted hours and their employer will have to pay those wages. So whereas with the furlough scheme, you could work no hours and the government would pay up to 80%, you have to work at least a third of your hours. So that's the government saying this needs to be a job that remains viable, that where you're still required to do some of the hours that you would normally do. The employer will then top up a third of the missing salaries, missing salary from your wages. Um, a government grant will top up the extra third and then at the final third will be a reduction in someone's Salary. So the maximum government grant that you can get, um, £697.92. Um, someone who's working a third of their hours will receive 77% of the pay they'd have received before. So from the perspective of an individual, it's not actually hugely different from the furlough scheme. So you'll have to work a bit, so a third of your hours, um, but the, the pay that you'll get at the end of it will be pretty close to the 80% that you might have got Um, through the furlough scheme. The big difference here is that the employer is on the hook for a significant chunk of it. So the employer's on the hook for 55% of those costs and the government's only paying 22% of the costs. So, So a big change in emphasis and I mean, only time will tell, but I suspect we'll see some job losses as a result of this because some people will, dis- some companies will decide that they they can't go on paying that significant chunk of people's wages. Yeah, I mean, it's sending a message to companies, isn't mm. it, that you 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 know you're going to have to try your hardest to recover. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure companies that's what they want, isn't it? Really, at the end of the day, but um, yeah, definitely much more you know, pressure on them. And, and, and unfortunately, if they can't make it work. 
um, then it's going to be, you know, you're going to have question jobs. So this is six months, isn't it? So this will six this months, six yeah, months. Yeah, so. yeah. So kicking at the start of November in a six-month six period, um, similar a similar scheme being put in place. So similar levels of grants being put in place for self-employed workers as well. So throughout this um, throughout this pandemic, the government's tried to extend the same support to self-employed people as employed people as well. But again, I suspect for a lot of self-employed people, the 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 money on offer, while useful, might not be enough to to keep them uh certainly to keep them in business and for a lot of people there'll be a a real struggle to um to make ends meet and i think for turning back to employers i think one of the one of the tricky things will be that you're, you're going to be in a position where even though the government's providing a grant to support someone's wages if they're working a third of the hours and you're, their hours and you're having to pay 55 percent of their salary then i think for a lot of companies there's going to be a really big decision there about whether that's worth your while now clearly recruitment of staff is famously difficult um lots of staff have um skills and knowledge which people will want that which employers will want to keep on but whether they'll be happy doing that while paying a, a, pay a percentage of their salaries that's significantly higher than the amount of hours that they're working um again only only time will tell but it's clearly a very different support scheme to the one that existed previously and it's i mean rishi sunak was very clear in his statement that he does expect the, the unemployment figures to to rise as a result of this change so good news that there's still going to be some support in place but it's it's different to what was there before and it's and it's not quite the same safety net as we as we've previously seen yeah so we discussed pension withdrawal rates and the importance of sustainability a lot on the podcast but um so tom i know you've been looking at some new official stats on how people are behaving so what does the data tell us yeah so i talk about pensions a lot on the podcast <laughs> don't i and i know you absolutely love it so yeah we, we uh, <laughs> so we had some new um some new stats from the financial conduct authority so that's the regulator that uh, that regulates the the city of london financial services firms and they were looking at the the way that people who've been taking advantage of the pension freedom so that's those are the reforms introduced in 2015 which mean that you can invest and spend your retirement pot how you like from age 55 looking at the the trends and the behaviors of those um, people so they've been doing this every year to keep a track on um, various different things that people are doing so a few interesting bits to pull out um, from there so um, defined benefit pension transfers so that's clearly been a, a, a newsworthy topic and I know that it's something that a lot of listeners to this podcast will be interested in as well so the total number of defined benefit pension transfers in 2019-20 dropped by 28 percent to 40,600 so that's 40,600 people swapping their guaranteed defined benefit pension for a defined contribution alternative now the FCA don't say why they think this has happened but I suspect um one of the big reasons here will be um, issues around the supply of financial advice. So if you've got a, a defined benefit pension worth £30,000 or more, then you have to take financial advice before transferring it to a defined contribution alternative. Um, the, the reasoning behind that is that DB pensions are very valuable and the decision is quite complicated. So that's meant to act as a buffer to make sure that you don't make that decision and regret it. But lots of advisors have been pulling out of the market, in part because the regulator has been introducing strict to rules on how they can behave and how they can charge and in part because they've been struggling to get themselves insured in case their advice ends up being wrong or they end up getting challenged by someone who they've given defined benefit advice to so customers who aren't able to see an advisor can't get their db transfer through so i think the fact that it's become more difficult to see an advisor is part of the reason for that um 
away from DB transfers. So um, there are figures on the number of people entering drawdown, so keeping their money invested while taking a, an income in retirement and the number of people buying an annuity. So before um, the pension freedoms reforms were introduced in 2015, uh, it, most people tended to buy an annuity and they tended to buy it with their existing provider. So an annuity, a contract with an insurer to pay you a guaranteed income for life in exchange for your pot of money. Um, so most people tended to go down that route. There were problems with that in that people were often sold inappropriate annuities. People often didn't declare health conditions that they may have. So, so for example, someone who um, someone who's suffering from, from cancer or some other life-limiting illness, someone who is a regular smoker, should be able to get a better annuity rate than someone who's healthy. But often insurers wouldn't ask those questions and would just sell someone who was ill an annuity that assumed that they were healthy and so they would get a rate that was far inferior to what they should have done. So that was one of the key reasons that pension freedoms was introduced. And one of the results of that has been you've seen this upending of the retirement income market. So before most people would buy an annuity and a few people go into drawdown and keep the money invested. Now the vast majority of people are keeping the money invested in drawdown. So about 200,000 people enter drawdown in 2019-20 versus just shy of 70,000 people buying an annuity. That's a slight drop in the number of people buying an annuity. The number of people entering drawdown has stayed roughly um, roughly the same. In terms of how people are behaving, so one of the one of the stats the FCA pulled out was the number of people who are emptying their pension pot the first time. So clearly you can spend and invest your pension pot as you like. One of the options is to just take the lot out now and spend it, you know, spend it on a holiday, stick it in a bank account. People have been doing different things. So the number of people who emptied the pension pot the first time out of asking actually increased 5%. Um, in 2019-20, so that to 375,500 people. So lots of people doing that, which on the face of it is quite a scary statistic. But when you dig down into the numbers, actually nine out of 10 of those pots that have been withdrawn fully were small pots worth £30,000 or less. So while it's not to say that that's never a concern, usually if someone's got quite a tiddly pension pot and they take it all out as one there's less of an issue from a tax perspective because clearly if you take a big pension pot out all at once you might end up paying higher and additional rate income tax that you could avoid paying by having a stream of withdrawals coming out um, and also if you've got a small pension pot then frankly the retirement income that's going to be able to provide you with over a long period of time is going to be minimal anyway so taking it out and having it as a as a pot of money isn't necessarily as unadvisable as it might be for a larger sum um, sum of money. Um, and then the, I think the final thing and one that I'll just, I'll just stick with a little bit longer is the, the rate of withdrawals. So, um, it's something that we've talked about previously on the podcast. So if you go into drawdown and you're taking an income in retirement, then one of the most important things you need to do is manage that rate that you access your pension in a way that's going to make sure that your retirement pot lasts as long as you do. Now, one of the Again, a quite a startling on the face of it figure from the FCA, uh, from the FCA, FCA stats. So, forty-two percent of withdrawals um, made in twenty nineteen twenty were at a rate of eight percent or more. Wow. Do, do you think? But is that from people who might have other? 
so that, that as well. Ex- or, or, exactly. Or yeah. is this worry time? So, well, so for some people, it will be worrying. Um, and I don't want to play that down. So what the data doesn't tell, tell you, as you say, is what other pensions people have. What other? So some people, for example, will have other defined contribution pots or SIPs. Some people will have um, defined, guaranteed defined benefit pensions, which mean they can take big withdrawals from a defined contributions pot, knowing they've got a secure income. Some other people will have high um, high levels of wealth, high other income sources that mean that those uh, withdrawal rates aren't necessarily too dangerous. Nonetheless, um, I think anyone who is taking big withdrawals, and, and so for, for context, uh, historically what people have tended to say is if you're a healthy 65-year-old, roughly you should be able to take around 4% of the value of your fund at 65 adjusted for inflation every year. So your income goes up each year in line with inflation. And that should broadly, in most scenarios, be a sustainable withdrawal rate. Now, that rate is, be, there are people who, there's a, an ongoing debate about whether the, what's called the 4% rule is right. Some people think it needs to be revised and revised downwards because people are living longer. But as a very rough rule of thumb, somewhere in and around 3 or 4% of the initial value of your pot, if you're age 65 and healthy, should be sustainable. So 8%, clearly a lot higher than that, and some people are going over and above that. So, so Tom, can you give us an example of what the impact would be of an 8% withdrawal? Yeah, so it depends, obviously, on the um, the age you're at and the, the kind of investment performance you, um, you achieve. But if we assume an annual growth rate of 4%, so again, roughly what people may or may not be able to expect from their for their pot in in retirement and if we assume that the amount of income someone takes increases in line with the bank of england's inflation target so two percent then someone withdrawing eight percent a year under those circumstances would risk exhausting their pot within 15 years so wow, that's if you yeah quick, so if, if you think of someone who is 65 um, then that would mean that they'd be looking at potentially exhausting their retirement pot by the age of 80. Um, if you look at life expectancy figures, um, people in their, in the mid 60s can expect to live at least until their mid 80s. Clearly, these are averages, though. So some people will live less long than that. Some people will live a lot longer than that. And in fact, they'll have a decent chance of living into their 90s or even celebrating their 100th birthday. We see increasing numbers of people celebrating their 100th birthday every year because um, because of improvements in healthcare and rising life expectancy. So. Anyone who's taking big withdrawals like that, so anywhere, anything, anything really significantly above four percent of the value of your fund, needs to think about what their lifestyle would be like if that money ran out, and so they essentially just most likely had to rely just on the state pension. So the state pension pays around nine thousand pounds a year. If you exhaust your private pension pot, it's possible that you'll need to survive for five, ten, even fifteen years on just that nine thousand pounds a year. Now, if you're happy with that then that's absolutely fine. If that's a scenario that scares you and potentially is a scenario that you don't want, then you probably need to review your withdrawal plan and potentially look at reducing your withdrawals just to make sure that they remain sustainable over the longer term. So that sounds like very sensible guidance there. So there's a lot of chatter at the moment about private equity companies trying to do deals. So we thought it would be worthwhile doing a special segment on the podcast Dan recently caught up with Arthur Mornington, a partner from the investment team at Oakley Capital, and Stephen Tredgett, who handles investor relations for investment trust Oakley Capital Investments. He talked to them about takeovers, whether private equity had start, started to be more transparent, the reputation of PE firms loading companies up with debt and underinvesting in them, and whether they thought time out had been a flop. So sit back and enjoy the interview. 
So we keep hearing about how the private equity sector is awash with cash. Um, so th in this situation, creating intense competition to buy the best assets? And if so, will high prices paid for new investments lead to lower returns over time? So Arthur, what, what do you think about that situation? Yeah, look, it's a very interesting point, Dan. And uh, the funny thing is that I did my, started my first job in private equity in 2001, and everybody was saying the same thing then. Everybody said, it's amazing, this private equity sector is growing, they're raising bigger and bigger funds, surely that will lead uh, to, to lower returns uh, and less investor appetite. And of course, as we know, over the last 19 years, almost e exactly the reverse has happened, which is this asset class has grown and grown because it's performed very strongly relative to public ownership of equities. And so it is absolutely true that there is a lot of dry powder in the industry right now, but it has absolutely felt like that for the last 19 years as well. Um, but look, nonetheless, these are the markets that we find ourselves in and we have to address ourselves to current market conditions as they exist today. And you are right that there are a lot of funds and there are a lot of uh, clever people trying to invest into private companies today. Now, actually, we see at Oakley that we can create an arbitrage out of that. What, uh, the, that um, what most funds are doing is actually playing in trying to buy companies through very well-run auction processes. And auction processes work very well when companies are well-managed with clear strategies, they're well-financed, they're well-followed uh, through the debt, uh, private debt and private equity markets. Uh, and that leads to a situation where all bidders are competing off the same information. And in that scenario, you're absolutely right that the volume of money that has been raised leads to very high prices on the sell side and much more risk on the buy side. Now actually in the Oakley Capital model, we really try and stay away from those situations. What we're doing is sourcing our deals through a network of entrepreneurs that we've built up around our business who co-invest in deals with us, bring us deals, and allow us to leverage their operating and industry expertise to understand complex, difficult situations, which most people are not interested in. And the good thing about that is if we can find these complex situations, if we can price this complicated risk uh, in a sophisticated way using our entrepreneurs, that means we can typically buy companies at much lower valuation multiples than the sector averages. But then of course, once we've tidied these companies up, we're very happy to sell them in auction processes and benefit from the way in which larger funds uh, are piling into assets at, at higher and higher valuations because they need to deploy. So, I mean, do you think at the moment with the, with the pandemic that um, there's quite a lot of perhaps distressed businesses that might trigger a new wave of activity? So where private equity companies are happy to take um, the risk of um, buying something that perhaps just needs fixing uh, and some money to help tidy it through. Do you think that's going to happen or and perhaps which sectors might we see some deals happening? Yeah, sure. Look, absolutely. Uh, a period of, of systemic change like the one we are uh, we're experiencing right now will create investment opportunities, of course. There's always an arbitrage in people's understanding and ability to price risk and forecast businesses. Uh, and actually, some of the best uh, vintages of private equity returns have followed economic crises. Um, there's a Morgan Stanley report that's recently out that showed that the post the great financial crisis, uh, the average private equity returns were around 70% better. 
Um, but look, I, I think the important thing is, uh, and I'm sorry, the other, other thing I would say is that because private equity money is committed for 10 years, uh, we can actually take a relatively long-term view. I think there is a misconception that private equity uh, funds like to quick flip, uh, as people say. So uh, buy, buy a company, uh, cut costs, increase margin, and then sell on within uh, a couple of years. That's actually not how the market works these days, particularly a fund like Oakley, we will typically hold our, our businesses for longer and invest very considerably uh, in various ways to accelerate growth. So I think there will be a new wave of, of private equity asset purchases. I think the long-term funding model will mean that uh, private equity funds will look through the current crisis and think that many consumer-facing companies will recover over a two, three-year period and will be happy to take that risk, uh, perhaps even in a way that, that public markets won't be able to. And so what you see right now is a, a really quite a stark dichotomy of opportunities in the market. We have companies that are very sticky, very defensive, highly cash generative, very resilient. It's sectors like software, tech-enabled services, um, digital consumer brands, online consumer offerings, which is actually many of the sectors that Oakley invests in. And those businesses are largely unaffected by the COVID pandemic. And as a result, you know, they are much in demand now. On the other side of the spectrum, there are the really difficult restructuring cases. You know, we have a, a whole a couple, a couple of teams in our, in, in our fund that are specifically targeting businesses that are zero revenue right now. And obviously that's a very different kind of risk. And obviously we need a much greater return potential to justify those uh, deals. But those might be in... Uh, sectors like travel or um, consumer facing live entertainment, hotels, etc. Uh, and of course, what we're trying to do uh, as managers is to build a portfolio uh, which would combine some of the resilient, non cyclical, sticky, uh, predictable businesses with some of those more risk on uh, recovery play type investments. Okay, you, you mentioned about um, there's a misconception that. That private equity companies just like to, to to buy a business and don't really do anything with it and then try and sell it for a higher price i certainly know when we see a, a company that perhaps floats on the stock market used to be owned by private equity there are many investors who say like I'm, I'm really cautious about this because there's a reputation that private equity just loads them up with debt doesn't do anything doesn't invest in the company to make it more competitive so whilst you know, perhaps revenue growth might look impressive uh, under the bonnet there might be some problems i mean that re that reputation must have been come from somewhere um do you think that that's still happening in the market now so stephen what do you think about that one yeah i mean arthur you may be best position to talk about this from um from the portfolio standpoint and, and general kind of pe i i guess if i can ad address the question of reputation in the public markets um look i think you should approach any 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 ipo with a degree of caution and and you should judge every i think you know p backed ipo on its own merits but i think it's a misconception now to to assume that a p backed ipo is is, is as you've described you know it's been loaded with debt and and, and starved of investment i i think it's a it's a reputation born out of high-profile consumer companies that came to the market subsequently struggled weren't able to therefore survive under the level of debt they had um and and then got into trouble and, and they're you know they're kind of companies like 
um, Debenhams, for example, you know, high-profile consumer type companies. But, uh, but I think in, in contrast to that, there are plenty of success stories. I mean, an, an obvious example is, is Fever Tree, which was an, an exit by LDC, um, you know, and, and their shares are some 15 times higher than the price they IPO'd at um, today. Um, there, and, there's actually interesting, last year there was a, a Milken Institute report that was published that looked to, to, act, to, to really kind of compare exactly that, kind of PE-backed PA, IPOs versus non-PE-backed IPOs. Uh, and the findings of that report was that on average, PE-backed IPOs created more jobs, generated larger revenues, and probably kind of more importantly, spent more in terms of capital expenditure on, on the companies. Yeah. So I mean, another thing when people are um, perhaps looking at um, sort of listed private equity funds themselves, um, I, I know some people sort of left guessing as the true value of, of, of what the fund should be because it's based on you know, the value of its holdings and, and unless some of those holdings have raised money recently, you don't really know what they're worth in today's market. I mean, what, what, how, how do you feel about um, sort of transparency these days for, for listed private equity vehicles? Yeah, it's uh, look. It's a really good question. I think it's the kind of the most Im important question for listed PE. There's certainly the sector's grappled with over the last kind of ten years. I mean, there's a real there's a real challenge there because, of course, the information advantage that private equity has is one of its um, great benefits that it has over you know a, a public a public company peer. Um, and so there's always going to be a reluctance to erode that that level of information advantage um, and you're absolutely right there isn't live pricing so there is going to be a pricing lag and I'm sure you're right that that's probably one of the great you know the contributors to the discounts to which listed PE trades to its net asset value um, on that basis if there's some if there's ever any ambiguity about you know how how well a PE fund might be performing um, I guess my, my two thoughts on that is, is firstly around transparency. Uh, I think there's been a significant shift, particularly from direct PE funds, in, in what they disclose, how they disclose it, and your ability to really assess the balance sheets of, the, of, of these kind of listed PE investment companies. We take OCI, for example. You know, we publish a lot of information about the current 15 portfolio companies. Um, we provide information about P&L, about um, how, we, how we anticipate them growing. We also um, give investors access to the, um, the CEOs, the, the business founders of those businesses. Um, in a, in a non-COVID environment, we invited people to kind of meet with them over, over lunch, discuss those companies. There's a real sense of your ability to understand now what's under the bonnet in a way that I think it was a fair criticism of this sector, um, you know, kind of 10, 10 or so years ago. Um, and I think that's borne out by the fact that, you know, the likes of kind of 3i or HG Capital now trade at or above their net asset value, which must mean a number of things. One, there's a kind of, there must, investors must be comfortable with the transparency. They must have a sense of what they, and a, and a relevant and up-to-date sense of, of what they think the value of those underlying companies are. Otherwise, the, the, you know, the company wouldn't, you know, those companies wouldn't trade at some share prices above the NAV. Um, I think where it is more difficult for an investor to gauge value is on the fund of funds. 
you know, you're talking there about multiple managers, hundreds if not thousands of underlying companies. There's, there's performance benefit and, performance and, portfolio, and portfolio risk benefit as a result of going for those opportunities. Um, but it also maybe explains why some of those funds trade at a larger discount to their NAV because of, because of the level of disclosure you just, you just simply not practical to provide um, about those companies. Yeah. So w- within your sort of portfolio, then I, I notice you've got a stake in Time Out. So, I mean, before coronavirus happened, I, I would argue the business didn't really seem to be going anywhere. Um, uh, you know, and now during COVID, it, it surely must be struggling. So, it, quite interesting to get your view of of the company's prospects and and also what point that you would admit defeat with investment because you know I, I'm sure like any fund manager would say they don't always get it right, and I'm sure with a private equity business as well. You can't always pick winners. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sadly, sadly, your last point is absolutely right. We, we wouldn't want to set an expectation that we, you know, we're only, we're only going to get it right, you know, 100% of the time. That, that's, not the, that's not the reality of private equity investing or any investing. Um, I think the first thing to say is that, particularly as Arthur's outlined in terms of the way that Oakley is invested and the type of, you know, tech-enabled, businesses um, that we've owned. Timeout, you know, is far from typical, I guess, of an investment that we've made today um, and has really involved a complete shift in the strategic direction of the company. Um, I think most, most will know it as a magazine, once paid for, now picked up free, and you know, at your local tube station. Um, and what Oakley can be proudly, you know, rightly proudly, um, <coughs> pleased with achieving is it essentially took that um, traditional print publisher and turned it into a digital publisher and essentially um, took the audience from 10 million a month as a result of kind of social media platform digital platform websites um, have taken that audience to over 70 million a month and in doing so have, have kind of created a kind of healthy digital advertising revenue stream and then the kind of unanticipated bit, but the real success of the story is that um, we've now created the physical version of Time Out. So Time Out is still doing what it always did, which is kind of telling you the best things to do in the city, the best restaurants, cultural experiences, arts, food, beverage, etc. cetera. Um, and now we have these Time Out markets um, and they are essentially a single location under one roof where we curated the best food, beverage and cultural experiences. Um, And the first example and the best example of that is in Lisbon, um, where there's kind of some 30 concessions, um, 25 different restaurateurs represented, uh, nearly four Michelin stars um, awarded to the chefs within that marketplace. And it is the best of Lisbon under one roof. And it's, uh, and the quality of food is incredible. It's like kind of fine dining, um, democratized, and that's been enormously successful, generating over 6 million um, of EBITDA last year. And basically the, the strategy um, that Oakley's deployed now is to roll that out. And last year, um, we opened five new markets, majoritively in the Americas, um, and we entered into 2020 um, with the share price having nearly nearly rallied 70, 80%, I don't recall exactly, um, with six markets opened um, and 
consider the profitability of potentially those markets. Um, and with a further five planned to be opened over the next couple of years, and a media business that was now breaking into profitability thanks to the focus, the digital focus, uh, and the higher margin um, of, that, of that media business. So I think at the start of the year, we were incredibly optimistic. I mean, the big business had been transformed. Um, and unfortunately, COVID leaves us um, in a in obviously quite constrained position. All the markets were closed as a result um, of containment and lockdown. Um, and clearly, advertising campaigns have been delayed in the current environment, particularly the ones that, that Time Out will benefit from, which is trying to travel and leisure advertising. Um, so what now, I guess briefly, the markets are now reopening, five of the six are reopened, only Miami is left to reopen in Q4. Um, they're functioning, they are large, Lisbon's like a, over 30,000 square foot location. Um, you can, diners are turning up, you can safely go and socially distance and still have a pleasant experience in the markets. Lisbon's now profitable again. Um, and despite the restrictions there and in America's, you know, we're, you know, we're seeing um, a steady footfall from the locals in those cities. And they're probably the busiest food and beverage locations in the cities they're in, in cities like, you know, New York, Boston, Chicago, Montreal. Um, we have refinanced the business. Um, the company raised 47 million um, back in May. So it has the funding to get it through this, this period of time and hopefully emerge um, beyond the impacts of, of COVID-19. Um, and uh, you know, at which point I think you emerge as a stronger business as well. We'd have announced by then some new markets. We'd have made progress on the, on the opening of uh, the new planned markets. Um, and also incredibly, the, the timeout audience has actually grown. I mean, the website traffic's up 10%, which I think reflects the fact that timeout is still relevant, even though we've kind of reorientated our content towards um, kind of virtual homebound um, kind of culture. It's still, it's still proving um, to be popular. Um, and sorry, the last question in terms of when do we, when do we give up on any investment? I think, I, I think it's, a, you know, it's the, the great skill of any PE firm is to recognize when investment's not gonna be what you imagine it to be. Um, and I think that's essentially exactly that. When, when an investment is clearly not the opportunity you identified um, or we're just not best placed to create the value within a business, then we'll exit. I mean, there's, there's, there's absolutely no doubt. Um, at this point in time, that's not the case with timeout. I think the business is incredibly well placed. We feel that we've got the strategy right. Um, it's just that we unfortunately have to kind of navigate um, the storms of, of, um, of COVID-19 for the next six, 12 months. Sure. Okay. Just finally, just, perhaps it's just, It'd be quite interesting to hear what, what's perhaps been one of Oakley's best investments. And, and so, yeah, I'm sure listeners would be quite interested to know how did you come across the opportunity in the first place? And, and perhaps, um, you know, what did you do to help them? And, and, and ultimately, what led you perhaps to, to sell the investment? Um, yeah, absolutely. Happy, happy to talk about that. So maybe the story I'll tell you is about a company that we created called WebPros. Uh, WebPros was the combination of two business software businesses in the hosting sector. Uh, so each of them, they're called Plesk and cPanel, are the two major businesses, uh, are a, a software layer between non-sophisticated users uh, of IT like me 
uh, and their server. So if you have an IT department who can write code or, or, or work from a command line, then you don't need one of these software layers. But for most people in small businesses and micro businesses, you do, you do need something like this. Uh, so it helps you configure, set up and, and control your server. Um, now, the, the interesting thing is, as you said, how do we find this? So we found the original uh, Plesk deal uh, through a couple of our long-term entrepreneur partners. Uh, these are two individuals who had started a hosting business themselves when they dropped out of university in Germany. Uh, and 10 years into their journey, Oakley had invested in their, the first business that they had created. That was a great success. Uh, and then later on, having been in the hosting industry for, for 20 years, they knew about this product called Plesk. Uh, and knew that the corporate owner was was getting ready to sell it. Now, when we first came across it, this was not a company. This was a product line. Uh, and as a result, it didn't have a, a complete management team. It didn't have any of the sort of middle or back office functions uh, for itself independently. It therefore didn't have a standalone P&L. Uh, and so these are very risky, what we call asset deals rather than share deals. Uh, these, are, these are difficult, complicated deals to do. We were effectively buying some source code, some customer contracts, uh, some employment contracts and some leases. Uh, and it was pretty difficult to work out what the uh, revenue was, uh, let alone the profitability of this thing. But that's what we do. And we, we went into it with our partners, spent six or seven months exhaustingly uh, trying to recreate the standalone P&L with the help of Ernst & Young. Uh, and eventually we were able to buy the business for what we considered to be a very attractive uh, multiple, which was about seven and a half times EBITDA. And when you consider that actually, once you've done all of that work to strip it back, this was a 100% monthly recurring subscription software business with a very, very sticky uh, customer base. Um, that's a very attractive deal because these things normally trade at 15 times or more. Um, so we acquired Plesk. We set it up as an independent company from, from being a product line. Um, and uh, along the, the journey, we, we came across cPanel, which is Plesk's equivalent in the US. And this was another wonderful story. Uh, cPanel was 100% owned by a fantastic entrepreneur called Nick Coston, who'd started the business in his bedroom when he was 16 years old. And 20 years later, he was employing 200 people uh, and had $38 million of, of EBITDA. So it had become a, you know, a serious business. Um, but very much a family-run, family-owned business. M many members of his family were in key management positions. And we were able to persuade Nick that unlike other private equity funds, we would be supportive partners and we could help him um, in developing the business. And so what we did is we put the two businesses together and that's uh, not an easy thing to do. And the, the central insight was that these two products were doing something absolutely critical to the entire hosting industry but weren't getting enough value for it uh, and weren't really treating or, or interacting with their customers in the way that they probably could or should. And so we set about that, that mission, which is first of all, to uh, increase the yield that we were getting on the products, but also to actually properly start co-designing the products that our customers really needed for, uh, for the next generation uh, of, of their uh, development. And so um, having put these two slightly awkward pieces of the jigsaw together, we were then, uh, to answer your last part of your question, confronted with a very high quality dilemma. Should we hold on to it uh, and keep going with this? Uh, or should we uh, realize some of our position and bring in 
another partner uh, who has even more global reach than us and more access to talent and more access to opportunities. And in the end, that's what we did. So we brought in another private equity fund called CVC, who are a big global uh, private equity business. And they were able, uh, they've now come in, they, they have a majority stake and we have kept uh, around a 20% stake in the business. Our two partners have about another 20% stake in the business. And together we now have a formidable uh, investor group uh, and, and a big focus on, on product development and are able to attract really some of the, the best talent available in the software market, especially in the US. Um, so the result of all of that is that so far, and the story has been finished for us, so far we've already made seven times our money uh, for our investors uh, in the first couple of years of the journey, and we would expect many more returns to come. Brilliant. Well, Arthur and Stephen, thank you ever so much for talking about the world of private equity. It's been brilliant to have you on the podcast. Thank, thank you, Dan. So unfortunately, that's all we got time for this week. So thanks ever so much for tuning into this week's episode. And please send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And we will see you again next week. Thanks. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.